0: today.
1: You managed this guy, and and I vividly
2: remember the postseason.
1: Obviously, uh, did the ball hit the bat, the the replay decided not to do it, and it was a tough moment for you. You guys survived that series, but I remember you discussing in the post-game press conference who in your clubhouse stepped up first to support you. Watch this. Todd Frazier was the first guy that said something, let's go, and that did stick out in my mind. Um, I'll never forget that because – you know, again, I was about as low as I could be as, as as a baseball player or baseball coach or whatever I was and um I mean it's been Friday, it happened on Friday. I mean I've been carrying this burden for five or six days. Um, it's hard. Um you know, if we lose on on, on Sunday, um it really hurts. If we lose on Monday, it really, really hurts. And if we would have lost today, it probably would have hurt even worse. Um so for me, what those guys did for me, I'll never forget it. Your name came up when your manager, Joe Girardi, had a press conference just moments ago. Yeah. It was, he, was, he was emotional as he was talking yeah. about wearing uh, the mistake of, of the replay yeah. in game two. And he said that he addressed the team, talked to you guys, and he said that, that you spoke up after he was yeah. done talking. And he said he'll never forget that. What did you say? What was that meaning like? Yeah, you know, I mean, everybody. New York's tough. You guys know it 100%. You're a manager there. I mean, one thing goes on. The guys won, uh, you know, a couple World Series titles, and uh, you know, to, for him to get booed in, in his own stadium, it kind of, it kind of hit ho- It kind of hit hard for us, you know, as players, because we got his back 100%. You know, basically, he said he put it on his shoulders, but I said, hey, Joe, you know, it's on our shoulders. We should have won that game anyway, and that's basically all I said. And uh, you know, this series was for him, man. At the end of the day, he had a lot of pressure on him. I know it hit him hard and uh, he's a great manager, which people still know that he is. He's done a great job, and, uh, you know, it hit him hard. You know? And I told him, I said, hey, we got your back 100%. Don't worry about nothing, and, you know, on to the next one. So, man, proud of him too as well. You know, one of the great things about that for me is, as a manager, all you talk about is staying together as a team. And no matter what happens, you stay together as a team and, and you take responsibility. And I took responsibility for the mistake, but Todd Frazier spoke up. And, and I think this is a great sign because for a number of reasons. He plays good defense like you talked about. He's going to hit his 25 homers. He's going to grind out at bats and work some walks and give you some big at bats where he drives and runs. But he brings energy. And he brings the love to play every day. And I think that's important, especially in a town like New York where, you know, lows can get really low because it can be hard to play here. And he's going to bring that love of playing every day, and he'll be great in that clubhouse. There's no metric for that, though, Joe. No, there, there isn't. And those guys are so important. And I think you have to have one in the infield, one in the outfield, one with the starting pitchers, one with the relievers. And he was that guy that really brought it.
0: edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on Sunday, February eleventh, twenty eighteen. Of course, you can check out the show all the time at mesmerizedonthelink dot Send me tweet at Mike Silva Media, and uh, you can get the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, pretty much whatever podcast service you desire. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva, and uh, pitchers and catchers are here about a day or so away. And it's about time we talk some baseball on this rainy February Sunday. And uh, really, we could still talk hot stove baseball because the hot stove, which has been cold, might have thawed out a little bit late yesterday with the Cubs signing of Hugh Darvish. Still tons of players out there that, you know, Eric Hosmer, J.D. Martinez, so on and so forth, that can be signed. And we'll see what happens. Uh, Joining us, it's a little bit of double barrel action today. Joining us in just a bit, Jared Diamond of the Wall Street Journal. Jared has covered the Mets. He now is a sports reporter for the Wall Street Journal. He also does um, a, a focus on baseball. We're going to get his thoughts on the free agent market, which uh, has been pretty cold and, and warmed up, not only with the Darvish signing, of course, I'll get get into the whole Todd Frazier, or the Mets in a little bit, and what have you. So Jared will join us in, in just a bit, and then later on, uh, interesting piece, a uh, sad piece that came out of the New York Post. Friend of the show, Bob Clappish, was a guest reporter for the New York Post, writing about former Met, member of the 1969 World Champion Mets, former manager of the Mets, Buddy Harrelson. Apparently, Buddy uh, is suffering Alzheimer's, and um, Bob went into that story and... Pretty much talk to Buddy and Buddy's family and what have you, and uh, we'll catch up with Bob about that, reminisce a little bit about Buddy Harrelson, get his take for someone who was around during the uh, era of collusion in uh, 1987, get his take on also what's going on with the uh, free agent market. So a little, a little different approach today. We have two really great guests. Usually we headline with one guest. This week I decided to go with two and, and give you a little bonus activity as uh, we you know you never know what you're going to get here at the Talking Mets podcast, but we'll start out with the news first. It's quite a few, almost a week old, but the Mets went out, and I had said at the beginning of the off season there were basically three areas that I would have liked to see the team approach and improve. I thought they needed an impact hitter, and I I talked about Eric Hosmer. Now that market went a lot higher than. Then I think anybody wants to go, clearly, because he's still unsigned. But nowhere near where the Mets were going to go. So the Mets instead, and I even said maybe Jay Bruce would be kind of that alternative, and that's where the Mets went. And then I talked about needing uh, somebody with a little bit of grit, somebody who can bring uh, some leadership, some good character to that clubhouse. And I mentioned Todd Frazier. I think defensively he was going to be an upgrade, and I had been talking about him for a few weeks and there was a lot of thought that he wanted to go back to the Yankees, and I know that the Yankees were in this to the very end, but apparently the Mets were willing to go a little bit longer in terms of contract. I think they got him on a steal, two years, about $17 million. So Todd Frazier now is a member of the New York Mets and will play third base. And I know everybody keeps saying, well, this marks the beginning of the end or the end of the David Wright era. I think the David Wright era ended a couple of years ago when he went down. I mean, yeah, I know that Jose Reyes wasn't exactly – Somebody that you thought was a third baseman. He actually, I guess, was viewed as like a stopgap until Wright came back. I mean, anybody who's been paying attention knows that Wright's injury is serious, and his comeback, the odds of it ever leading to him returning to the major league field is very slim, almost minuscule. So Todd Frazier's back. If you really want to look at it from a statistical analysis, uh, the Mets go from essentially a player like Reyes, who played a good majority of the year, at third base, uh, had a, a really rough start, uh, a better ending when he moved over to second, and then he, I think he played a little bit short, but Reyes was actually a negative, uh, was worth a negative uh, ha- win, actually a negative win total, negative 0.6 last year with his performance. Uh, the other member of the, uh, I guess, the the tandem there you're looking at is Struble Cabrera. Struble Cabrera was worth about one win, so last year, between Cabrera and Reyes, who were your at one point, second baseman, third baseman, they combined for about a half a win. Uh, Frazier alone was worth about three wins when you look at his work between the Yankees and the White Sox. And then you add Cabrera, who was about worth about a win last year. You've got a net game about three and a half wins, so headed in the right direction defensively. Obviously, there might be some concerns, about Cabrera at second base, uh, we'll see where that goes, and um, you know it'll be interesting. Uh, with Reyes, can Reyes be, you know, the better defensive of the two? We'll see. And can Can Ahmed Rosario make up with it with some of his range? So a lot lot, lot there, but I think, and you heard in the opening, you heard Joe Girardi's comments over on MLB Network Radio about what Walker meant to him in the playoffs and how he supported the manager. And all you keep hearing is this guy wants to be in New York. He's a grinder. He's a winner. You know, is he a flawed player? Sure. He's a guy that's not going to hit for high net, high average, but – you hope he grinds out at bats, like Girardi said. He's going to give you a pop. He's going to play plus defense at the position. And that's all you really could ask for. So it looks like the Mets' offense is pretty much complete. Now, there was talk, and like I said last week, where the team is looking to add a veteran pitcher. There was talk about Alex Cobb and Lance Lynn in that market. Now, I never really believed that market was going to fall to the Mets. Now, I know Arietta now is out there. And with Yu Darvish going to the Cubs, Arietta obviously, uh, and the fact that you, Darvish, who's younger, um, you know, maybe a little bit more upside than the players that I just mentioned, getting a, a really struggling to get a six-year deal. You know, what does that mean for those other players? Would any of them consider? And I think the Mets have to sit back and say, okay, would any of these guys consider a one-year, the old pillow contract? And I'm not sure right now that any of them fall into. I don't. I don't know the mindset. And, and again, this is what we'll get into with Jared Diamond of the free agent player that's still sitting out there that thought they were going to get a four or five year deal, uh, something like that. and uh, you know now is faced with pitchers and catchers reporting and still being unemployed. I'm not quite sure if any of them are ready to wave the white flag for that pillow contract and then say, hey, let me get let me get into the, get onto a team. Uh, let's perform, and then get back out to the free agent market next year. Which you know, who the hell knows if it's going to be any different? What I could see happening is players potentially sitting out a chunk of the first half, waiting to see teams and how they perform, and then a team saying, "Maybe the Mets, hey, we we really need a starter. We got another starter. We actually could be in the thick of of something special or something serious." Now that's a tangible situation where. Uh, you can actually say that this player will lead to winning, not conceptually because you're already in the thick of, of winning or your team taking shape, and then maybe they could get a better deal, maybe a three-year deal, maybe a four-year deal on top of them coming in and helping out for the rest of 2018. We'll see. But I, if I were the Mets, I'd sit back and see if any of them are willing to do a one-year deal pillow contract. But if not, it seemed, and, and here's where it probably comes into play, and this is where, and again, I guess it, it's part of our conversation about the free agent market, where the report from Ken Rosenthal of The Athletic, also you see him on Fox Sports during the games, is that the Mets seem unwilling to give up their draft pick. They seem unwilling to give up the international signing uh, bonus money that they they would lose, which is about a half million dollars, and that's a lot in the international market, um, for signing a Lynn or a Cobb. Now, the skeptic is going to say, yeah, sure, they're saying that because they don't want to spend the money, they don't want to extend themselves, but they showed with Frazier that they are, and the payroll is up around $145 million or so, uh, that they're willing to extend themselves in the right situation. I think it's more about the long-term dollars, the long-term years, being committed long-term. I think a lot of teams, not just the Mets, are falling into that, and I think that's a big part of it. Now, there's also this bargain bin of some interesting names that Rosenthal is reporting that the Mets are interested in, and that's uh, Andrew Kashner, Jason Vargas, Jaime Garcia, Jeremy Hellickson and John Lackey. Now, when I really sift through that, those are interesting names. I mean, Hellickson had a a, a couple of years ago, not so much last year, had a decent year with Philadelphia. I think he's a guy that could give you six innings, three runs. I think on a team that's good with some good defense and can score, he'd be okay. He did go to Baltimore and get lit up. You know, American League East and, and that ballpark, not easy for a pitcher who, you know, is not a total contact pitcher, but there's more contact there than probably you like. The most interesting, most reliable, I think, of that group is Jason Vargas, who has been really good over the last couple of years, and I'm sure Dave Island would be most familiar with him, having just been his pitching coach in Kansas City. The one out of that group that I, I know you're going to turn, maybe turn your nose up at, but I think would potentially offer the most short-term upside is John Lackey. Now I know what you're going to say. He got lit up, and he did. He got lit up in the playoffs. He had an awful year last year for the Cubs. Uh, why would the Mets want to get involved in him? Well, he still was a 500 pitcher last year, 12 and 12. He was slightly below league average last year as a pitcher. Now the year before, he was above league average. He had uh, a 11 and 8 record, a 3.35 ERA, is a 125 ERA plus, which is better than his league, uh, his career average. Uh, when you look at the metrics, his strikeout rate, not all that much off from his career, not that much off from the prior year. His walk rate, not that much off. What was the biggest difference between 2017 with the Cubs and 2016? Well, gave up 36 home runs, which led the league, uh, led the National League, I believe, uh, at that point. The most he's given up in his career, the only other time he had given up that many home runs was in 2003 when he was his, really his first full season pitching for Anaheim. Um, So, to me, there's something there. Now, I don't think Lackey, in this kind of market where there's a free agent freeze, where guys in their 30s, even just slightly north of 30, are having trouble getting contracts. I don't see how Lackey get anything more than a one-year deal, a spring training invite, perhaps, and that that might be the case. He might not even be guaranteed a roster spot. I know Adrian Gonzalez was guaranteed a roster spot by the Mets, which I was surprised that it, it necessitated that. but. I don't even know if that would require – that would be a requirement for anybody like a lackey at this point in the year. And, and, you know, you bring these guys to spring training and say, look, we'll let you know pretty quick within the first couple of weeks of March whether this is going to lead to a roster spot or we'll let you go. There's ways of getting around that. It's not the end of the world. It depends. At 38 years old, uh, you know, here's a guy, you know, salary-wise he's made – oh, I'm, I'm looking it up right now here. Uh, you know, he's made uh, $140 million a year, you know, career – so he's obviously wealthy if he's invested his money well. He made $16 million last year. Does he really – and this is the key. And this goes back to originally when I had, had my start off of the offseason conversation about signing players. I said R.A. Dickey would be a great option. Here's a guy who probably wants to go year to year. He's a knuckleballer. They're a little bit more sustainable when they get into those late 30s, early 40s. Uh, and, 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 and the way you get a guy like that is you have to make it worth it for them not to retire, not to spend time with their family. And I think that falls where John, I think John Lackey falls exactly into that. Now, truthfully, R.A. Dickey would still be the guy if he wants to pitch. And I know that there's some reports that he does that I would go up to and say, hey, look, here's an incentive deal. Here's a a, a, a very healthy base, a very generous base. But you got to prove that you can pitch. And, uh, you know, he's familiar with New York. The Mets know what he could bring. I think that's the kind of stability because you really don't, have a problem with the knuckleball or with, with the arm. I mean, he's going to be able to pitch. You don't have to worry about it l- limiting innings. You don't have to worry about velocity. just have to hope that the rest of his body's legs, his back are healthy. And uh, if it's a reasonable deal on a one-year deal with some uh, generous incentives, is it enough to get him away from you know, being home and spending time with the kids and delaying retirement and the rest of his life for another year? I don't know what that would mean. Maybe $4 million, $5 million base plus incentives. I don't know. But to me, that would be the best option. If that's not an option, or if Vicky wants to sit out you know, maybe the first half and be somebody that pops into a pennant race later in the year, which I wouldn't blame him if he were, uh, then Lackey to me is the most interesting name on that list. Now, I still would sit back and see if the Arietta, the Combs, the Lins, are they going to be able to you know, sit back and, and withstand not having any offers? And it sounds, even with you Darvish being signed, that there really isn't a lot of activity on all these free agents. Will this open up? I mean, 40-man roster spots are really starting to get tight. You have to make some maneuvering. Uh, Teams are settling into their camps. I mean, it's going to be very interesting to see how these players find jobs and how many of these players are going to wait out and really stay hard to what they want. I think the Boris clients, under the guidance of Boris, will. I'm not sure some of the other guys will. Uh, And I don't know what guys like Lackey are going to do, I mean, because at some point, uh, you stay out of the game for three, four, five, six months, people forget about you, regardless of what you did last year, and it becomes that much harder, and the contract that you will get if you decide to come back sometimes is not even as lucrative as the one you could sign now. So really interesting stuff. I think the Mets are going to be able to land themselves an arm to give themselves some depth in that rotation. So far, and, and I'm hoping to have him on in the next couple of weeks, our buddy Kevin Kernan over at the New York Post. So far, there's a lot of positive coming out of Mets camp with Mickey Calloway and, and some of his methods and the amount of of planning and structure, and, and there's a thought process. For the first time in a long time, maybe s- since Bobby Valentine was the manager, you feel like there's a plan with the Mets in terms of them going into camp, uh, at least... With the pitchers, and I shouldn't say that because I think Rick Peterson had a plan. I think Rick Peterson did an outstanding job. So you look at it close to a decade where I felt the Mets were pretty much – it came across like they were winging it with their pitchers. And I think now you're going to have a very structured, not just analytic, but very intelligent, prepared way of going to battle with what really is the most precious commodity in all of sports, which is starting pitching, the most fragile commodity. And Kevin has done a great job in interviewing Mickey Calloway. And I know we spoke to Zach Wheeler and Zach Wheeler and Stephen Matts and and Noah Syndergaard and Robert Gazelman. And I'm really looking forward to catching up with him at some point in the next couple of weeks. And if you're not checking out Kevin's work at the New York Post, you're missing out because one of the things that's the best part of this time of the year is when a writer like Kevin gets down early to camp and gets the players and everybody in probably the most relaxed one-on-one environment that you'll get them at any point in the season because not every reporter has gone down there yet. There's not the crunch of, you know, even just playing spring training games. Uh, they're really just working out, and you can't get players in a much more relaxed environment than that. So anyway, uh, that's where we're at with the Mets. That's kind of the State of the Union uh, where where we stand here on uh, February 11th, 2018. So anyway, let's take a quick break. When we return, Jared Diamond, sports reporter for the Wall Street Journal, will join me. Let's get into this free agent freeze. Let's hear what he thinks about the Mets and the Mets signing of Todd Frazier. Um, you know, I don't know if it's going to tip the scales in terms of the height, but I certainly think the Mets made a, a very nice step forward this week with a, with a player that can really be uh, an important part of a team that I think, if if properly managed, if they stay healthy, if they're focused and, and everybody focused on the right things, I think it could definitely compete for a playoff spot. And after that, anything's possible once you get into the, get, once you get into the dance. So let's take a quick break. When we return, Jared Diamond, Wall Street Journal, right after this.
3: Brandon, okay. speaking of the job market, a little bit different than Sonic, you were on MLB Network yesterday, and you were asked about the slow pace of the free agent market and you basically put it on the players. You said, hey, it's our own doing. What did you mean by that? Oh,
4: man. Um, I I meant what I said. Uh, You know what? Everything that happens in the game of baseball, as far as how things are done financially, is bargained into a collective bargaining agreement. Uh, The way free agency runs, the way draft money is allotted, the way international signing bonus money is allotted, everything is bargained. And I uh, obviously this is my own opinion. I I don't want to sit here and pretend that I represent all of the players. I don't want to sit here and pretend that this may or may not be a popular opinion. This is just from my perspective as a guy that, you know, my career is almost finished, so I don't have to deal with this much longer. But the worry is there for me as far as a player now for players in the future that enough attention is not being paid to the way – we allow our system to be ran. I feel like we put more things that are of less value at the forefront. And I just feel like, uh, we're starting to have to walk a little bit of a tightrope uh, that we've created for ourselves. I think that we have given the owners and we have given the people who are very, very business savvy, uh, a very good opportunity to take advantage of a system that we created for ourselves. And Um, I'm not sitting here saying that we have – we're not better than anyone else. We're not sitting here trying to say, like, hey, man, I deserve $180 million. I deserve $200 million. That's not what we're saying. What we're saying is we have the right to bargain and set our price, just like the owners have the right to meet that price. Uh, But what we've done is we have incentivized owners and we have incentivized teams to say – we don't want to make that price. We don't want to meet that price. It costs us too much to meet that price. It costs us draft picks. It costs us international signing money. It costs us all these different things. We're going to have to pay a tax if we go over a certain threshold that we set ourselves. And so I just think that by doing all those things, what we have done is we've given owners and, and teams and franchises an excuse to not pay top free agents, to to have a reason to say, no. We don't want to go after these guys because this is why. And the only reason those things are there is because we bargain them in. If I'm an owner, my goal is to have the bottom line be in black, to put a winner on the field and the bottom line to be in black. And the more opportunity you give me to do those things, the better off I'm going to be. And I just feel like as, as players – We also have to watch out for our own interests because if you run too good of a deal out there in a bargaining agreement, then of course the owners are going to jump on it. You have to be willing to dig your heels in a little bit and fight for the things that the guys in the past have fought for. I'm sure that those guys in the early 90s were not excited about going into spring training without a job, without having a salary, without being able to say, this is what I'm making this year and this is when I'm going to have a job again. But they did it, and players like me benefited from it. And I just hate to see players like me taking advantage of a system that was set up for me by other players and not passing it along to the next generation of players. And, you know, everybody wants to look up and scream collusion. Everybody wants to look up and scream this isn't fair. But sooner or later, you have to take responsibility for a system you created for yourself. It's, it's our fault.
0: We're back and uh, joining us, the national baseball writer for the Wall Street Journal, Jared Diamond. You can check him out on Twitter, at Jared Diamond. And he also has a pretty cool newsletter, at 30 Newsletter, which we'll get into in a few minutes. But kicking it off with Jared here, uh, pitchers and catchers a day away. Uh, The NFL season is over. you ready for baseball, Jared? I know you do all sports, but obviously, you, you know, you were on the Mets beat and baseball is your specialty.
5: I'm ready for it. It's pouring rain outside today in New York, so... Let's get down to Florida and get some guys out on the field, right?
0: Right, and and maybe the hot stove, which we could technically still call it a hot stove with all the free agents out there, is possibly still thawing out or maybe starting to thaw out with you, Darvish, signing. And it's interesting because, Jared, I'm I'm not an owner's guy. I'm not a, I'm, I am not wouldn't say I'm a card-carrying union member, but I always side with the union because of all the history of the owners in baseball kind of, all the underhanded things they've done over the course of 100-plus years. But uh, uh, this time around, I really don't think that there's collusion. And I'm curious your take because I think teams, I understand what Boris is saying about the competition aspect. I think teams are starting to question more so the years and the long-term commitment to players, not so much the dollars in the short term but the long term. And I wonder if you agree with that, if that's the crux of what we're seeing with with this freeze.
2: Well, they
5: certainly are. There's no doubt that teams are increasingly unwilling to give long-term commitments to veteran players. This is something that we've seen happening over time. This is not all just started this year. It's sort of been it's been building and building over the last few years. The free agent market last year was pretty cold as well. I think a lot of people forget that there was only one nine-figure deal last year. That was Yoenis Cespedes, and that was not. A long-term deal either so this really started last season even before it's just sort of come to a head big way this year because it just seems like no one is able to get the contract that they want uh and it does come down to the fact that teams don't want to give veterans that six seven year deal anymore but the problem is if you're the union you're the players a lot of contract negotiations have to do with precedent so you have players out there going well this player and this player signed this sort of deal and I am comparable to that player. So therefore that's the deal I should get. And now you have owners and teams saying we're breaking the precedent. We're going to set a new precedent. And that's very dangerous for the players because once that new precedent gets set, if it does get set, it becomes a lot harder to ever sort of bring it back to the way it was. So you wonder if we're starting to see a new normal and it's a new normal that players kind of don't want to see.
0: And and the players that are out there, let's let's just take two of them, uh, Eric Hosmer and J.D. Martinez. Look, both of those guys would be upgrades. I'm not sure I would give Hosmer a seven or eight year deal. And let's also face it, with J.D. Martinez, he hasn't been healthy uh, all but one year of his career. So, I think the the warts on players or the 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 concerns play into this. I also wonder with a guy like Hosmer, as good as he is, because he's the quote unquote best player in the market at his position. I think in the past, you would see teams overpay, whether it be a pitcher or a position player, a B player, A money. And, uh, you know, yeah, you win the offseason, you get the headline on the newspaper, everyone gets excited. By July, you regret that. I mean, look at Jason Hayward. That's a cautionary tale. I never understood the kind of contract he got because I understood he had some good qualities, but he never was that type of player. And I think, forget analytics, this is just common sense. I think that there's just a, some a modicum of common sense being put into this whole uh, free agent process.
5: There is. I think there's, there are different players. You mentioned Eric Hosmer and J.D. Martinez. In the case of Hosmer specifically, I'm actually not surprised at all that he's had problems finding the contract that he wants. Actually, I, I think we all remember reading and hearing even last season before free agency started about sort of the interesting case Eric Hosmer presents in free agency just because he, his numbers are good they're not great you talk about intangible qualities with him the royals sort of value him maybe more than other teams do he's never been a, a great player eric osmer he, he's always been a good player who's played on some good teams and has an incredibly good reputation in the game as a leader and, and all these other things but those are not typically the qualities that lead to a big Free agent contract that more has to do with your statistics, your performance on the field. And he's never been a great player. His OPS is 781, it's above average, but not much above average. He's a good defender, but he plays first base, so not a very valuable defensive position. He's just not really a great player. And I think he wants to sort of position himself as a great player. And Scott Boris wants to position Eric Hosmer as a superstar. I'm just not sure Eric Hosmer is, and it's clear that the rest of the league agrees. J.D. Martinez, however, he's a little different to me. He was incredible last season. He was just so great. He had 45 home runs. Uh, He's been a monster offensively for the last three or four years. Last year was his best year. I really thought he would do better in free agency than he's done. He's not that old, Eric uh, J.D. Martinez. He, He just recently turned 30 last summer. I thought he would get that maybe six-year deal, but maybe not because he hasn't gotten it yet. And right now it, it just seems like Boston is bidding against itself and is not, gonna, not going to budge. So I don't think it fears the Red Sox fear they have any competition right now.
0: Jared Diamond joining me, Wall Street Journal. And Boris had talked about the concern he has, and obviously Boris is a salesman too, uh, about the non-competitiveness of the league. You see it a lot in the NBA. I'm not sure teams are trying not to win. I just think they're being more conservative. You know, you even hear about the Mets, and and, and they've been obviously a topic here, and the Yankees. Yankees haven't exactly, outside of John Carl Stanton Spent this winter, uh, concerned about signing a Lance Lynn, signing an Alex Cobb, because they don't want to lose pool money. Uh, They don't want to lose their second-round draft pick. Um, You know, I, I don't think this is the NBA yet, where teams are punting and you only have four or five teams that really can win. Um, but it certainly uh, is something bear watching. Do you agree with Boris? Do you think that there's a lack of competitiveness and teams are starting to say, hey, let's rip this down. It's an all-or-nothing sport. Uh, why compete for a second wild card? Why be an 85-win team when we can win 70 games, make a little bit more money, and maybe be a title contender in five years? Uh, you know, are, are, you in, are you in that camp? Do you believe that's what's going on on a wide scale?
5: I do worry about Sort of the tanking culture that baseball has seen, and I feel like as someone in the media, in my job, I feel a little partially responsible for what's gone on, only because I praised the Astros ton last year. Uh, I praised the Cubs for what they did. You know, I wrote, and many others did as well, wrote so many stories about how smart these teams were and how phenomenal the strategy they employed, and how well. It worked, and it did for the Astros and for the Cubs. But I do think what's happened to an extent is now you have owners out there that see teams essentially tanking, not trying, saving money, uh, sort of blowing up their team and not spending for five years, and they're being sort of heralded as geniuses. The Astros, oh, they were so smart for what they did. So now you have other owners going, well, you're saying I could not spend for four years and instead of having fans burning down my doors, they're going to say I'm smart? Uh, yes, I'll sign up for that. And I do think you have owners sort of doing that with not, perhaps not the same vision that the Astros had, which the Astros clearly had a plan to rebuild. Do I think all the owners whose teams are sort of tanking have this great plan to rebuild? No, I don't. And it's just common sense. Right now you have 10, or, 10 to 12 teams you could realistically say are not really competitive in 2018, you can't have all those teams get the first pick. Not all of those teams can even get a high you know, a high draft pick. Some teams that are trying to lose are going to be not terrible. And that's bad because if you have too many teams not you know, tanking, trying to lose, or not trying to win, I should say, uh, it doesn't work for some of those teams, Well, then what? Then all of a sudden your five-year plan becomes an eight-year plan or a 10-year plan, and will fans accept that? I hope they don't. At some point, I would hope that fans of some of these teams say, look, let's try to win. We're we're close, you know. Look at the Marlins, right? The Marlins who are the biggest tankers there are in, in many ways right now. They're blowing the whole thing up, and I understand their financial situation is what it is, but look, They weren't that far away from competing. They were a couple pitchers away. And I know Derek Jeter's going to say that there was nothing they could have done to build this team up. I don't really buy that. And I don't think that fans should hear their owners say that and just accept it. I think fans should continue to demand excellence. They should demand a winning team and not just let these owners say, well, we have a plan to win five years from now. I know it worked for the Astros. I know it worked for the Cubs. But that should not become something that fans just blindly accept. Fans should still want a winner. And I give credit to, to Yankees and Mets fans. I do. These fan bases in New York, they, are, they have not accepted this idea that the team could just be bad for a while. And the Yankees' rebuild lasted about five minutes. And now all of a sudden they're a World Series contender again. They were in the ALCS Game 7 last year. And the Mets, look, for all their problems, you can't say the Mets aren't trying. We could, we could disagree about sort of how they've gone about it. But the Mets are certainly trying to compete in 2018. And honestly, I give them credit for that, considering how many teams aren't.
0: Well, that's a great point. And, you know, the Astros were the first to really take an NBA-style tank. And, and there were real legitimate reasons, I mean, in that market. It was a little easier to do it when you have Wrigley Field with the Cubs. You're going to draw in those in that place. Uh, to a certain degree, you'll draw at City Field somewhat. Yankee Stadium, you'll still get the fans to show up, San Diego, uh, Kansas City. I don't even know if you can legislate this. The problem you have with, as a sport is that, okay, fans say, I'll see you in five years. Let me check out. Let me go watch Netflix. Let me go to the beach. Let me go to a play. There's so much. Let me watch other sports. That eight-year-old kid, uh, he's not going to worry about being 13 years old watching Contender. I don't know if there's a solution um, to non-competitiveness other than the fact that an owner wakes up, uh, shows up to his ballpark. There's 9,000, 10,000 fans there. And then even with the smaller payroll, I'm not making any money. Uh, I know it's a, a luxury and it's a medallion for a guy or a woman to own a baseball team, a family. But um, it's an expensive medallion. And at some point, you've got to say to yourself, well, what the hell am I doing here? And, and that's the interesting part because you're right. You start doing this eight, nine, ten teams a year. Only one or two might be successful at most, eight or nine are not. And then what are you left with? You're left with two decades like the pirates of bad baseball. And at some point, you may become irrelevant in a city if it's the wrong city.
5: Yeah, and the Pirates are a great example. A team that just that blew it up this offseason. Why? Why did the Pirates blow it up? They were good. They had a very good team. For a few years, they were making the playoffs. We made the playoffs, what, three years in a row? Three out of four? I don't have it in front of me. But they were good for a while. I know last year was bad for the Pirates, but they still had talent. They didn't have to trade Garrett Cole. They didn't have to trade... Andrew McCutcheon, but their owner basically said, I don't care. I need, I don't want to spend this money. I'd rather blow it up and start all over again. And guess what? Pirates fans have not accepted it. And I give Pirates fans a lot of credit too, because they're not accepting this tank job going on in Pittsburgh, nor should they because the pirates shouldn't have blown everything up. They should have tried to build. It's not their owner, Bob Nutting saying, well, I can't afford it. If you can't afford it, then you shouldn't own the team. The problem is you have these owners crying poor, saying that we're in a small market, we can't afford to spend on players. No one really buys that. Every single team just has got a $50 million cash infusion one-time payment this year, how many of those teams took that $50 million and invested it back in players? Did any of them? Maybe one, two? It's ridiculous, but they're not doing it because they don't have to. And I think it's a problem. And I do think when you get to the next CBA, which we haven't gone into, but the CBA obviously has been a disaster for the players. They did a terrible job negotiating this most recent collective bargaining agreement. But when they get back to the table, the end of 2021, there needs to be some sort of, to me, to me, some sort of incentive to try to win. I don't know what it is. You could talk about a salary floor, uh, payroll floor. I, I know that that sort of leaves leaves open the Idea that then the owners would want a payroll cap, nonetheless there's something there's got to be something that sort of incentivizes winning. Maybe we start giving bonus pool money to the teams that win, not the teams that lose i don't know
0: no it's it's a complicated thing. I have Jared Diamond Wall Street Journal uh, with me a couple of things before we wrap up. Uh, I could see a Boris client doing this uh, not sure if a smaller agent. Uh, for a player, because they're going to get under pressure. These players from their families. Hey, what's going on? There's no check coming in. I understand it's hard for regular guys, you know, making fifty, sixty, seventy, eighty, a hundred thousand dollars a year to say, you know, how can you turn down one hundred twenty-five million? Well, it's market value. There's a pie to be had. But I could see a player sitting out a majority of the season, like a Clemens did many years ago, and then hoping that teams, as they get into contention, as they smell a, a wild card spot, look at that player and say, hmm. Yeah, he wants six years or seven years, but I could use him now. I could win. The owner starts to feel it. See, right now, winning the offseason, winning the headline, which was always a silly thing to begin with, it, people are starting to say, why do I need that? It's costing me money for, what, 48 hours worth of press? But July, all of a sudden, it's real, and winning is real. And maybe that player wins a better contract than they could get now. Uh, it's just going to take patience, patience from them, their agent, their family, and understanding that you have no money coming in, not the end of the world for some of these guys, but when you're only you know, 30 years old, only have like five years left of earning, it can become stressful. It would be interesting if that plays out this summer.
5: It could happen, maybe for someone like J.D. Martinez, sort of hold out a little bit longer. I think it's possible. But I think the important part of this whole story that I think gets lost a little bit is this is not about, at least to me, this is not about the top guys. These top guys are going to get paid. you Darvish got paid. Jake Garriott is going to get paid. J.D. Martinez, Eric Hosmer, they're going to get paid. To me, it's the other guys. It's the the lesser free agents who I think uh, we should be talking about a little more. There are a lot of free agents out there, veteran players, decent players who could clearly contribute to a team, who normally would sign for $3, two, $3 million, who are basically being told by teams, uh, you have three choices. You can accept a minor league deal even though you're a major league player who normally would get a major league contract. You can go to Asia, leave your family, go to Japan, go to Korea, make money there, or you could just retire at age 31. Uh, and these are players that a lot of fans might not care about. They may not sort of they're not sexy names. But that's what's happening to a lot of good baseball players. Baseball players that are better than the players that will replace them uh, that are being told, like, we're just going to go with the younger, cheaper guy. And I know this is something that a lot of people in the real business world can relate to, sort of just being replaced by someone younger and cheaper than them, uh, even if you might be better at your job. But that's what's happening in baseball now. I don't think that's good. I don't think it's good that you have good major league contributors being told we're not going to sign you because we could just bring up a kid from AAA who's making five hundred thousand instead of giving you that three million you normally get. I, I think that's a problem, and I, and I think that when we get to the next CBA again, another thing the players really should be talking about is how do we ensure that you know players get paid better when they're younger. You know, why is the minimum salary in baseball still five hundred fifty thousand dollars? And again. I know that's a ton of money to the average person. That's a, that's a ton of money to me. I would love to have a salary like that. But the reality is revenues in baseball are growing enormously every year. They're now you know over $10 billion, approaching $12 billion. Why is the minimum salary not grown proportionately to the increase in revenues in baseball? It hasn't. That, re- that minimum salary has barely grown in years. It's been sort of in that five to $550,000 range. For quite a long time. That matters. We all know that your starting salary plays a big impact in your eventual earnings. And I think that's something the union should really be pushing for is why is that that minimum salary not a million dollars? That would do a lot of good, I think, for some of these free agents in the future.
0: Right. Also maybe adding a roster spot. Um, And the luxury tax hasn't gone up. I mean, that's the other thing. I mean, it goes up, but probably not proportionate to the revenue. You know, you you mentioned the Mets, and obviously they kind of fall in this city, not quite in the Pirates mode of tanking, but the fans aren't really happy with what they've spent. And quietly they just signed Todd Frazier to a value contract. There's talks of them getting a starting pitcher. They'll probably shot more in the lackey, Uh, Bin than they will in the the Lance Lynn bin But I have a feeling they may sign One more player Um, You know there's been a lot of Criticism of them you covered them when they were kind of In baseball purgatory where they weren't spending But they weren't horrible Uh, I don't think they're as bad I think everyone's forgetting 2015 And and to a certain extent rightfully so What do you think of their offseason Specifically the Todd Frazier deal which I think Quietly can be a pretty good signing And a pretty good player in that clubhouse to me,
5: the Mets right now are the team where you go, if, if everything sort of works, if this and this and this come together, then they could be a wild card team. Uh, and that's good. You know, that's better than a team that you look at and say you have no chance. They definitely are sort of in that group of teams you can see competing for a wild card spot. However, I think they could be better. And if I'm a Mets fan, I'm frustrated that they have not – out and made one more move. To me, that one more move for the Mets would be to go get another starting pitcher,
2: uh,
5: a guy like Lance Lynn sitting out there, a guy like Alex Cobb sitting out there. I, I just think that would make a huge impact on this team the way it's constituted, just because uh, this rotation has no depth. There's a lot of question marks about health, and the idea of bringing in one sort of semi-reliable veteran, good middle to top of the rotation piece. I think really stores it up. I don't think there's much you could do for the offense at this point. The offense is going to be, it is what it's going to be. I think it's, it's going to struggle. I don't think it's going to be a great, a great offense. Uh, I think one player it, offensively that I look at for the Mets is hopefully breaking out as Juan McGarish. Uh He is, you know, I don't know what the plan is for him right now, but we all know he went to see one of those swing coaches over the off season We've seen players, guys like Chris Taylor and others, really see improvement after going to a guy like that. With his defense, if he could improve his offense, then he could be a player that could be sort of an X factor for the Mets. But I I do think another pitcher would really help because I don't believe in the Harveys and Wheelers in masses of the world. I'd like to believe in them. I like all those guys. Is there any Mets fan that really feels good about Matt Harvey, Zach Wheeler, and Stephen Matz. I mean, I think if you do, you're you're just sort of fooling yourself at this point.
0: Last thing, you actually do a pretty cool project, the 30 Newsletter with Mike Vorkanoff, who also covered the Mets at one point. He's over at The Athletic now, and he he got himself into the Knicks. I wonder how that – he might be looking for the Mets pretty soon after dealing with that. But um, you guys deal with Q&A with writers. I know you do some pretty uh, interesting stuff uh, in terms of job postings. Uh, listeners are probably aware of it, but if they're not, why don't you give them a little overview and, and maybe some of the things you've done and what you have coming up there.
5: Thanks. Good to do a little plug. Yeah, the 30, it's like you said, a project that I do with Mike Vorkanoff. He now covers the Knicks for the Athletic. That's really cool. Uh, it's a weekly newsletter where we, it's, it's sort of a journalism newsletter somewhat. It every week features a and a with a journalist that we really like. We've had Sports writers, we've had non-sports writers, we've had sort of a nice sort of large group of people, people that you know, people that you probably read and like, and we talk to them about their careers and about the industry and things like that, just about journalism. We have journalism job listings every week, a bunch of stories for everyone to read. Basically, if you're interested in sports writing at all in any way, if you follow sports writing, if you read a lot of sports writing, uh, it's a cool place for you, so sign up. The the link to subscribe is in my Twitter bio,
0: and the athletic. One last thing, the athletic. That's an interesting uh, entrant into this media world subscription service. Like you said, your 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 co-founder there, Mike Vorkanoff, is there. Uh, you're at the Wall Street Journal. In a lot of ways, uh, you know, because the Wall Street Journal is a subscription service. You got to think this is the future because uh, good journalism is something that's always a topic of conversation. I know that's, that's something that you guys talk with journalists over at the 30 newsletter.
5: Yeah, look, the, I hope The Athletic is a huge success. It's it's growing enormously. They've hired some amazing people. The New York version of The Athletic, I think about just tomorrow on Monday, Monday the 12th, they have Mark Grigg over there covering baseball. They have really just a great group. And I hope that people sign up. They're doing great work. They're doing great work in a lot of different cities. They have a national presence now with Ken Rosenthal in the baseball world. I think it's awesome, and I I think it's good for everybody if The Athletic is a success. So hopefully people go and sign up. I have an account, subscription, It's not very expensive. Uh, I think the work is worth the $30 a year that it costs.
0: Jared, enjoy the rest of your weekend. Thank you so much for being generous with your time, and uh, be well, and I'm sure we'll catch up as the season goes on. Take care, my friend. Thank you. Jared Diamond, Wall Street Journal, at Jared Diamond on Twitter, some interesting stuff, and I agree with him. It's a a very complex debate, the free agency conversation, ties in, obviously, to the complaints here that you've had about the Mets throughout the offseason. But uh, I think, you you know, for fans that weren't around uh, in the 80s and early 90s and, and really when baseball and revenues and, and free agency exploded in all sports, I mean, players just didn't move teams as frequently as they do now up until, you know, maybe 1995, 1994. It was really that demarcation line. And you may be seeing a new economic shift here where the game has to adjust to a new way of looking at the sport. And some of that may require a whole overhaul of the economic system. I know Jeff Passon, like I said earlier, talked about it. Scott Boris is very opinionated about it. I don't think you're going to see anything over the next three years. But um, overall, you may have to, at some point, put rules in place. It's always about the market inefficiency. Go back to the old, which is really an antiquated movie, Moneyball. What's the market inefficiency? And once the teams find the market inefficiency and exploit it and basically kill the goose – now you have to create a rules or infrastructure or an economic system that addresses that, and then eventually you'll have to address, address that because they'll find ways around it. That's just the way that the world works. That's the way business works. That's the way sports is going to work, and, and that's, that's no different for financial institutions and consumer products companies as well as um, Major League Baseball. All right. Let's take a quick break. More to come right after this.
3: Hey, Mets fans. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. If you're looking for the best, unbiased, and independent coverage of the New York Mets, then look no further than MetsmerizedOnline.com. Metsmerized Online is the go-to place for comprehensive Mets coverage, including exclusive interviews, daily original articles, great weekly features, in-depth analysis, minor league reports, game-by-game breakdowns, and so much more. Find out why thousands of fans turn to Metsmerized online every day to get the latest news and opinions about the Mets. Coming from an impressive staff of the most passionate fans and skilled writers ever assembled all in one place. Check it out for yourselves, Mets fans. Go to Metsmerizedonline.com right now. That's Mets, M-E-R-I-Z-E-D, online.com, and get Metsmerized
0: today. We're back, and interesting stuff from Jared Diamond there, and uh, it is a big problem. I mean, I think it's hard to legislate teams who don't want to compete or, or who feel there's, to quote the old Pat Riley uh, saying, there's winning in misery. And I think the NBA has really started a lot of this, because in the NBA, if you don't have a top 10 talent to anchor your, anchor your team around, you really have a hard time winning. And just getting into the playoffs or being a 6-7-8 seed and maybe winning a round, even if you're a 4-5, or five, it, I guess from a revenue standpoint, there's certainly a value to that from a, a standpoint of team building. It's almost like purgatory, and I think a lot of other sports are taking this and saying, well, let's tear these things down to the studs, rebuild it, and have a possibility to be a top you know, five team in the league versus being – I guess, at best, middle tier and trying to sneak in and make some noise. There's a lot of debate, and I think there's a lot of value to both, but I think baseball, unlike some of the other sports, as long as you get in the playoffs and you have some decent starting pitching, you have a chance to win a series. I don't think anybody in 2015 thought the New York Mets were a pen- contending club at the beginning of the year. They thought they had potential with their young pitchers. And if you really peel the onion, yeah, like I've been saying this, i said this a thousand times on this show. They were good from about July 31st to the end of the year. They didn't play all that great. They were essentially a 500 team. We had a little bit of a hot start there in April. A 500 team through most of the spring into the summer. We got hot at the right time. The pitching was all together and healthy at the right time. They got themselves a slugger at the deadline, and away you go. It doesn't take a lot to win 88 to 90 games, and that's really what you need to be in contention for at least one of the wild card spots. And then it's about winning a game, getting into the five-game series, and, and away you go. I know you don't want to build your team around that, but to tear everything down to the studs when there's something there because you don't want to invest in a team, that's the kind of aggravating nonsense that I think a lot of Mets fans experience from like 2011 to 2015 when they were in baseball purgatory because they didn't have the money because they were stuck in the Madoff situation and didn't invest in any of those teams. Now, The catch on that was that they traded a Beltran uh, to get Zach Wheeler. They traded an R.A. Dickey to get Darno and Syndergaard. So if they had kept those veterans to try to make a run at it, well, maybe you don't have the 2015 season. And maybe then, and that's the argument, uh, you really don't have the team that that at this point people think has an ability to win and win more than once, depending on how you look at it. So... I understand that. I don't think that everything is just black and white. I don't think you can legislate it. I think the only way you can maybe fix this is to do what the NBA did, which is basically have a share of the basketball-related revenues and, and, and maybe get a little bit more transparency in that because that luxury tax doesn't seem to go up at the proportionate rate that the revenues go up, and you have to wonder why. And, um, and I'm not an expert on the business side of this, mind you. Uh, and I think you also have to consider, you know, is there a serious spending floor And then maybe if there is incentives for the draft and the international bonus money, maybe tying that into free agency, maybe that's not exactly just like when they had to take away the whole qualifying offer, losing a first round pick. Maybe now it's not, uh, you know, a second round pick. Maybe there's too much value on these picks. We can debate that till the cows come home. So a lot to think about. I think Jared gave us some interesting things to think about and and certainly uh, had a good time catching up with him. It's been a long time since we had Jared on the program, probably Last time we had him on was when he was a Mets beat reporter for the Wall Street Journal. Now he's moved on to a little bit of a broader position. So anyway, like I promised, some double, double barrel action today. Uh, we'll have another guest coming up. Uh, blast from the past, used to work for the New York Post, just recently uh, was working for The Record, and he's been on the show, and now he's a free agent, and we'll we'll see what he's up to. Bob Klappish, longtime baseball writer, member of the BBWAA. Bob had a chance to catch up with Buddy Harrelson, and we found out the sad news that Buddy uh, has has been suffering from the beginning onset of uh, Alzheimer's. And we'll have a chance to talk a little bit about that piece in the New York Post that he wrote earlier this weekend. As well as remember Buddy Harrelson, the kind of player he was. He also managed the Mets. And catch up with Bob with his thoughts on, you know, he has an historical perspective on this free agent frenzy because he was around reporting on baseball during the 1980s when there was the collusion led by none other than the former commissioner of baseball, Bud Sealing. Very important. To keep putting that out there Because I think a lot of people forget about that So anyway, let's take a quick break When we come back, Bob of uh, Recently the New York Post Just freelancing the New York Post And the record And you can check him out on Twitter At Bob Clapp. right now Looking for his next assignment, his next home So we'll take a quick break We'll be back with Bob Klappish right after this
4: Ground ball hit down to first base Builder has it, throws to Buddy Harrelson One,
3: to first, double pay
4: out, a fight breaks out, Pete
5: Rose and Buddy Harrelson, both clubs spill out of the dugouts and a wild fight is going on, Jerry Kuzman's in the middle of the fight, everybody is out there, Buddy Harrelson and Pete Rose got
4: into it, Rose apparently thought that Harrelson had done something in making the double play, Rose outweighs Harrelson about 35 pounds.
0: Joining us, you guys know him, member of the BBWAA, Bob Clappish. We've been talking about free agents. He's a free agent, just made an appearance at the New York Post, as well as done some work over at the National Past-time Museum.com Bob, welcome to the program. Uh, obviously, in a time where we're talking about free agency, you're a free agent. Uh, h- how are you doing, and good to see you back uh, at the New York Post uh, this past weekend?
2: Yeah, it was funny. I hadn't seen my byline in, like, 30 years. I had the oh, jersey on the rafters for this one. I think the last uh, last year covered '87 B- before I went to the Daily News, but it's uh, it's good to be in my old stomping grounds. And as a free agent, I can only tell you I've got a couple things in the hopper, not ready to announce to them yet. But I got a couple things on just around the corner.
0: Good to hear that. Now, obviously, the topic of conversation was Buddy Harrelson, and uh, sad news hearing about Buddy's uh, fight with Alzheimer's. And I know a tough piece for you to write. Um, how did this all come about? I mean, it was all out of the blue. I'm sure those close to Buddy have known about it, but something like this, I guess, was not something they wanted to make public, I guess, too soon and what have you.
2: Correct. uh, I got a tip from a friend of a friend, a third-hand connection to the family, told me back in the late December that Buddy had been struggling with Alzheimer's, and, you know, my journalistic instincts kicked in. I just thought if the family was okay with it, it would be a good story to bring to write and to bring awareness of this terrible disease. Um, but it, you know, it took some time to reach the family, uh, give them time to think about it, to discuss it, you know, it really took four to six weeks for it to, to bring it to light. And there was some debate internally at the Harrison household as to whether or not it was proper to put this in the public eye or whether it was the right time or not. And ultimately Buddy decided he wanted people to know about it for two reasons. One, Obviously, the more awareness you can bring to Alzheimer's research, uh, the better. The more people know about it, the more, because just about everybody knows someone or knows someone who knows someone. I mean, it's, it's unfortunately touches so many lives. So the more of the light we can bring to this issue, the better. Uh, and Second Buddy is still very much out and about. Uh, he's not locked into his house. He's not a shut-in by any means. He's still a part owner of the Long Island Ducks and attends all their home games in uniform. Sort of a celebrity greeter. And I think the Harrelson family wanted people who go, fans who go to the games, the ticket buyers, who interact with Buddy, to not wonder, hey, he doesn't seem quite himself. It wasn't quite right. That that conversation we had was awkward. And what's wrong with Buddy? And, you know, this has been going on for about a year and a half now since his diagnosis. And the Harrelson family just wanted people to know what exactly is his condition right now that he does have Alzheimer's. And that's the reason why he sometimes struggles with a conversation or he seems to be fumbling for a word or just doesn't quite seem to be himself. This is the explanation. And not only is this the explanation, he is fighting to make this disease. He's doing his part to help find a cure if only by bringing awareness to it. So those were the factors that went into right coming to this story, becoming to light as it did last week.
0: And, you know, not to eulogize, Buddy, that's not what I'm trying to do, but I did say, let's a little look at his career, because there's a lot of people listening who, you know, look, they're 18 years old, the, the only thing they know is, you know, the 2006 Mets or the 2015 Mets, and Buddy is a player of an era gone by. I mean, he had as many home runs as probably Sammy Sosa had in a good weekend series for his career, but <laughs> right. I went to baseball, right. I went to baseball reference, and I said, let me let me do a quick search. Uh, wins above replacement, shortstops from, you know, 68 to about 1980. And, yeah, you have your Robin Younts that come up on that list and Larry Boa, but Buddy Harrelson's actually in the top ten. Now, I know it's a, a stat for whatever it's worth, but maybe a little underrated because you look at the offensive statistics, only one gold glove. You know, Mets fans who grew up watch Buddy, but he's certainly a guy that probably the numbers – you'd have to watch him, I think, to appreciate what kind of player he was.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think he uh, – you know, he's before my time professionally for sure, but, I mean, I think he embodied what that 69 team was about you know, greater than the sum of their parts. He was just a tough, fearless, relentless defender, Uh, not much of a hitter, you know, by his own admission. Um, But shortstops at that time generally were not offensive threats. I mean, buddy, really, his value to the team was A, in his glove, and B, his competitiveness and his athleticism and the fact that he made the Met pitchers better, if only because they were more confident about throwing down in the strike zone. They knew that anything hit the shortstop. Not only would it be caught, but we caught and handled flawlessly, and occasionally come up with a great play. You know, and that sort of assurance in a pitcher's mind means everything. It has it pays dividends to not have to worry about throw a ground ball pitcher, not having to go for the breakout because you know that if you get something on the ground, it's going to be scooped up and handled perfectly. by Your shortstop, so you know that kind of spirit, that kind of assurance. First of all, for the pitchers, and that kind of toughness and resiliency from your shortstop and and buddy. I think it made him so valuable in a way that's really hard to quantify. And the third third factor is they just loved him personally. He was a great guy. He is a great guy. And I think that the the sense of Buddy's personality I got, I knew him past his playing days, you know, as a coach in the eighties and when he managed in 1991, I I know who he was and that person is still mostly intact. I mean, his case is mild to moderate. I would say, you know, if I had to quantify it, I'd say, there's about 80 to 85% of buddy Harrison still there. His humor is there, his wit, sarcasm. It's just that he has a little more trouble expressing his thoughts, it takes a little more time, and occasionally he has trouble finishing a sentence because he can't quite get the word he wants. And unfortunately that's, you know, one of the foremost symptoms of Alzheimer's is the shrinking vocabulary. You just forgot how to say something because that word no longer exists in your brain. But if you knew Buddy, you would still know Buddy. And the chances are, if you were from his baseball past, he would remember you also. What he can't remember is what he said 30 seconds ago. And the family members tell me that, you know, he'd often repeat himself or ask the same question over and over again, which again is another typical symptom of Alzheimer's. But it's, it's, you can sit down and have a great conversation with him if you're willing to accept the limitations and know that you know it's not what it used to be, but it's pretty darn close right now.
0: Yeah, Bob Clapp is with me, at Bob Clapp on Twitter. Great piece in the New York Post about Buddy Harrelson. You know, you mentioned what a nice guy Buddy is, and I've had a chance to meet him and sit down with him about 10 years ago at the at the ballpark, for the, you know, he's part owner of the Long Island Ducks. A part of that nice guy, I think, didn't translate. You bring it up a little bit in the piece about his time as a manager, and I know that... It doesn't seem like the Mets. The Mets get knocked about this all the time, uh, you know, embraced in their history and former players being involved. Uh, Buddy is very, even in his state right now, he remembers his time as a manager, and I think he still has a little bit of a, I don't want to maybe chip on his shoulders too strong, but I know when I spoke to him, uh, the way things ended with the Mets bothers him a lot. He's more of a Long Island duck now, it sounds like, than he is a New York Met in a lot of ways because of how things ended, you know, when he was a manager and obviously how... I guess ownership has not embraced him and other members of his, of his, you know, his generation or the team that he grew up on.
2: Yeah, it's a shame because you know there is there is not a very strong connection to that '69 team. There has been no formal celebration of that championship. Uh, you know, I'm you know that's obviously another reason I wanted it. I wanted to write this story was in the hopes of getting creating some awareness about Buddy doing something nice for him before it's too late. Why not have a Bud Harrelson day at Citi Field? Why not just love this guy for who he was, who he is, and for however long he can, he can appreciate it and his family can appreciate it. He deserves it. He's been a lifelong Met. He's a, a loyal Met, played, coached, managed. I mean, he's done everything for this franchise that you can ask for. And yet there's this gap between him and the franchise and the Wilpont family and Jeff in particular I don't get it. You know, if there's a reason for it, I'd like to hear it because I just don't understand why these guys haven't all been assembled at Citi Field and just loved, you know, because they represent a great time in this club's history, in this team's history.
4: You know, and, and
2: Buddy has said in the past that the Long Island Ducks, which he helped establish out in Bethpage, are the greatest thing he's ever done in baseball, which is a remarkable thing to say for someone who's, who helped play for, who helped create a world championship in Flushing. For him to say that the ducks mean more to him than the Mets shows you to what degree he's been hurt by the Mets, and that that wound has to be addressed. It really can't go on forever, and I'm hoping this summer that will finally be remedied.
0: Yeah, and look, uh, if they're blaming him for what happened as the team, you know, their demise was, Buddy the right manager for that group? No, clearly not. He didn't, it sounds like he didn't even want to, and he said that to me when I talked to him. He really didn't want to manage. He was happy with doing what he's doing, but they fired Davey Johnson. Um, funny, maybe Dallas Green, who came years later, was the right guy for that group, and, and maybe Buddy would have been better with a younger team, but it's almost unfair. It almost seems like there may be some with the beginning of the Mets demise from the 86 group, in some ways they blame Buddy because he was the manager when things started to fall apart before Jeff Torborg.
2: Oh, you know, yeah, that's definitely partially true, Mike. I mean, the Mets were starting to decline under Davey uh 89, 90. I mean, at that point, Carter and Hernandez were gone, and, you know, that era really was, was shrinking fast. It was receding. The Mets were just no longer the team they were in 85, 86, uh, even 88. Um, so Davey was fired in the easy, quick choice in the middle of the season. I was in May. Davey was fired in, in May of 1990. And interim manager at that point was Buddy. I'd been around the club during their better days. The team knew him. Players liked him. Uh, but what he – and you know, just on paper, he checked enough boxes that they, they figured they could put him in there and put him in the manager's office and, and roll the dice and maybe things would, uh, you know, it was not meant to be, and probably because Buddy himself didn't want the job, as he's told you and he told me in the article. He was a coach. He said once he put him in the manager's position, he's just another guy. It wasn't a good team, and he didn't have any magic dust to, to sprinkle over the players to turn them into contenders. They just weren't that good. They finished out of the running in 1990 and they were just a really bad team in 91 and again not even buddy's fault he didn't make it through the season he was scapegoated for sure but to show you to the degree that ownership realized that they needed an, a complete makeovers when they brought in Bonilla, coleman eddie murray they brought in jeff torborg to manage it was a complete makeover of the club um so i don't blame buddy at all at all
0: uh, Bob Clapp is joining us here, talking about Buddy Harrelson. Bob, you, you know, we earlier in the program talked to Jared Diamond of the Wall Street Journal. We were talking about the free agency freeze, and you were around for the 1987, uh, I guess, collusion, which turned out to be collusion. Uh, what are your thoughts? I mean, you have a good historical perspective. I don't necessarily believe it's the same thing now. There's a lot of play, but uh, that has been brought up. You know, Scott Boris has even brought it up. I know he's being his salesman self. Uh, having been around there, what are your, what are your thoughts about that?
2: Uh, I think the circumstances are a lot different this time. I mean, I think there was no doubt there was an act of collusion, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Uh, but this time, I think the owners are simply better informed. I mean, they have much more data now than they did in the past to evaluate a, a player's performance. And it can almost tell you to the year, to the month, when that player is likely to decline. And they are tailoring their offers in terms of money and, and years of commitment and tethering it to the data that is now available to them. They're just much smarter and much more reasonable, much more efficient in how they spend their money and what kind of checks they're writing. And I think the players have to realize that the playing field now is even it's level that the year, the era of hoodwinking owners into stupid long contracts is over and they're going to have to adjust their expectations accordingly. So I would not say it's sort of a, a, an evil collusion as you would find as you found back in 87 it's just an awakening on the owner's part that there's a better way to spend your money there's a more intelligent way to spend your money and they're just not going to waste it anymore they're really not going to flush money down the toilet so if the players want to see it as collusion sure they can call it that but i don't think so
0: a couple of things before we wrap up here uh, so baseball's upon us pitchers and catchers in another day you got the Mets signing Todd Frazier, uh, you know, hopefully with some young pitchers that will so far are talking the talk. You got the Yankees with John Carlos Stanton. Who knows, maybe one of these free agents falls to the Yankees at a at a pretty good price. Um, what are you going to be looking at? What are you going to be focused on as we head into the spring? What are some of the storylines you're interested in diving into a little bit?
2: Uh, I think there's no question. I'm sorry to say this to Mets fans, but the Yankees are going to dominate spring training. They're going to dominate the entire the hot entire regular season, if not New York, no, I'm going to say not just New York, but I think on the national scene, I mean, the Yankees right now with Stanton and Judge and the way they ended last year, you know, I, they're like the Beatles in 64. I mean, they are celebrities now. You know, I've covered the 86 Mets. I covered the 96 Yankees. I covered the 98 Yankees, all championship clubs. But I have never seen the sort of enthusiasm and the anticipation that's now building for the 2018 Yankees. It's It's phenomenal. And, you know, who knows how far they're going to go. I think they're going to win 100 games. Uh, I think they're going to score 1,000 runs. The Astros are probably better than them right now still. But I think it's going to be a heck of a ride watching this club, you know, on and off the field. I mean, just judging Stanton alone, how they coexist, whether they'll get along, whether they'll be friends, uh, whether there'll be a rivalry between them. I don't know. And it's going to be fascinating to watch. I think for that reason they're going to dominate the headlines locally and, you know, throughout the industry.
0: You, uh, you've you written some interesting pieces for the National Pastime Museum. It's an interesting site kind of diving into baseball history, and even though we're in the age of the Internet, when you look at things that happened 20, 30, 40 years ago, sometimes piecing together the true story or the facts isn't always easy because it's pre-Internet. Um, I don't know how much more you're going to do over there, but I figured I'd give it a plug because you wrote about Pedro Martinez and Ebbets Field and... Some real interesting stuff, and, and and if the listeners are are, are interested, should you go check it out. But wanted to get your take on that before we wrapped up.
2: Yeah, they. Uh, it's a, you're right. It's a it's a unique sort of boutique uh, website. I mean, they have their, It's a website tethered to a, a an actual museum with memorabilia and all kinds of artifacts from baseball's history, and and the website is is supposed to bring awareness and and traffic to to the museum itself. But it's been fun. I've been able to dive into whatever historical, you know, rabbit hole I want to go down. And so I've picked a couple of things that have interest to me. You know, recent history, way back in the day history. I've written about Babe Ruth. Uh, I've written about Pedro Martinez, Elston Howard, Mickey Mantle, Yogi Berra. I've tried to make it, you know, New York based and somehow connected to the Mets and Yankees in some way. But it's made me a lot smarter. I mean, I've done a lot of research and, and turned myself into a into a bona fide historian just through the time I've written for them, which has been for the last year and a half. So check it out. It's a lot of fun.
0: Bob, appreciate a few minutes of your time. Nice article. Sad stuff about Buddy Harrelson, but great uh, that you brought awareness to it and looking to see your next venture and catch up with you over the summer. All right, my friend?
2: All right, Mike. Thanks for having me on. I do appreciate it.
0: Bob Clappish at Bob Clapp on Twitter. And um, we'll uh, obviously uh, let's hear more about Buddy Harrelson and his situation as time goes on and uh, always hope to hear bob Clappish and read bob Clappish and he's been a friend of the program for years and i find him and and, and what he brings from a baseball perspective uh, pretty interesting and pretty important to the landscape uh let's take a quick break wrap up final thoughts right after this
3: hey mets fans i'm gonna let you in on a little secret if you're looking for the best unbiased and independent coverage of the new york mets then look no further than MetsmerizedOnline.com. Metsmerized Online is the go-to place for comprehensive Mets coverage, including exclusive interviews, daily original articles, great weekly features, in-depth analysis, minor league reports, game-by-game breakdowns, and so much more. Find out why thousands of fans turn to Metsmerized Online every day to get the latest news and opinions about the Mets. Coming from an impressive staff of the most passionate fans and skilled writers ever assembled, all in one place. Check it out for yourselves, Mets fans. Go to MetsmerizedOnline.com right now. That's Mets, M-E-R-I-Z-E-D, online.com, and get Metsmerized today.
0: Final thoughts here, Talking Mets podcasts. Mike Silver here. Uh, fun stuff with... Bob Clappish and uh, always enjoy him taking a few minutes of his time out to talk baseball with us here. And, uh, and interesting stuff, sad stuff about Buddy Harrelson. So uh, anyway, uh, so as far as the show, we'll, we'll continue to do the weekly podcast. I think we'll have our for roundups. Um, I really don't think we have to worry about breaking news. I don't think there's going to be much of that going on. I think we're going to be back to kind of talking just baseball and checking in weekly see how the Mets are progressing, you know, positional battles. And uh, as I did promise a call-in show, I know that that's coming up, and that's something I do want to do over the course of the next couple of weeks, and we'll definitely get one of those in before March 1st. And I definitely am looking to catch up with our uh, friend of the show, our friend Kevin Kernan, who's done some great work at Where's Kernan on Twitter over at the New York Post. I I texted him and and basically said, Kevin, great work. Going to be, you know, giving you a shout-out to come on the program, And, and he's ready to rock and roll. So, Stay tuned. I expect to have Kevin Kern on our show in the very near future, have the call in and hear from you guys as well. So definitely uh, had a fun show today, and hopefully we're back into the swing of things and we move from Hot Stove Talking Mets Baseball to, I guess, Grapefruit League Talking Mets Baseball. So, Anyway, I want to thank Jared Diamond. You can check him out on Twitter, at Jared Diamond. Check him out at the Wall Street Journal as well. I want to thank Bob Clappish at Bob Clapp on Twitter, and stay tuned for Bob's next endeavor. Of course, I'm your Host Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at Mike Silva Media on Twitter and the show at com. Have a great rest of your weekend, and I'll talk to everybody soon.